Green Rush Nation, producer Shea Gunther here with another announcement about this week's show. It's just one of those busy stretches of time for everyone here at the Green Rush, and we just don't have a regular episode up. But as we often do when that happens, we do have a pretty good substitute in the latest episode of my podcast, Marijuana Today, where hosts Brian Adams, regular Matt Walter, and new guest Alex Halperin of The Weed Week dive into the latest goings-on in legal marijuana. So enjoy. Hello and welcome to episode 394 of Marijuana Today. It's your boy, Brian Adams, your host for this week. I am an MC, instructor, medical cannabis patient, and the director of education at the Harrington Institute. The views and opinions expressed on the show are mine and that of our esteemed guest. What up, Marijuana Nation? You already know what time it is. It's time to get serious about marijuana business and politics. And this time around, we'll be discussing the status of the Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act, or as Chris Crane calls it, KOA, the National Football League's CBD study, and much more. And as you know, I could not do this alone. So, of course, I'm joined by some of the brightest folks in our cannabis industry and movement. My first guest comes to us by way of Washington, D.C. He is the founder of and CEO of Hedgerow Analysis, a group that offers qualitative and quantitative analysis to mitigate risk in innovative sectors such as the cannabis space. Welcome back to the show, Matthew Walter. Great to be here, Brian. Excellent. Nice to meet you. And my other guest is a first-timer to the show. Woohoo! All the way from California, you know him as the business reporter uh, and a host of the Weed Week podcast and writer of the Saturday morning newsletter by the same name. Welcome to the Marijuana Day. Oh, excuse me. Welcome to the Marijuana Today show, Alex Halperin. Hey, thanks. Great to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Glad to have you both. Nice to meet you both. And um, it's February 2022. And Black History Month is still the shortest month of the year. Back to the festivities. Hand me a blunt up in here. Here's segment one. So you probably know, if you're a regular listener to the show, that safe banking passed the Senate again for the sixth time. Not that it matters to Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Starting this week's show is Marijuana Moments article by none other than Kyle Yeager, relaying the current situation regarding federal marijuana legalization from the perspective of advocates who met with the senator recently. Drug Policy Alliance, Cannabis Regulators of Color Coalition, and Women Grow, Rochester Normal, and a whole lot of other folks, you know, had good conversations with Schumer recently and are hopeful that the Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act is finally introduced. Now, don't get me wrong. I truly believe that getting the social equity piece is right and is an awesome feat. But let's be honest. What are we doing for our current social equity businesses? 
right? We got to get this piece right, but what are we doing right now is what I want to know. Like any other business, cannabis needs adequate banking to exist, and that includes ancillary cannabis businesses such as packaging. But in this report, Schumer has mentioned on many occasions, obviously, uh, to keep the big boys out of cannabis. That's what he wants to do. He wants to keep the big boys out of cannabis. Now, Chuck Schumer and those of you who listen to the show probably already know that big tobacco and big alcohol are already invested in cannabis. <coughs> Altria, <coughs> Constellation Brands. So I don't know what he means by keeping the big boys out of marijuana. They're already here, as far as I'm concerned. And the people who were actually granted social equity licenses, which I know they are few and far between, uh, less than 5%, they need protection right now, too. Right, So these businesses need protection, and all of the other states that are putting together the social equity pieces have different ways to do it. And when you, I don't know, make banking legal for a business, then it makes it a lot easier for folks that are already uh, in the bill. And you're not going to stop the big folks from coming in, uh, especially when you do banking. I understand his his concern, but what about the folks that are already here? What about the folks that want to get in? Um, there's still a lot of folks like that. And again, I mentioned ancillary markets. So Matt, I want to start with you. How does the democratic led CAOA or KOA wiggle its way into the committee hearings, not to mention eventually becoming law, even though safe banking could garner the Republican support needed? Well, I think it's got a tough road ahead. Uh, and I think that's largely a function of the numbers within the Senate. Right. So Chuck Schumer is uh, an extraordinarily savvy politician. He knows the number one rule of politics. You got to know how to count. He's got to know that he's got enough votes to actually get it through the Senate. Um, and the ability to do that on a wide range of bills um, has been pretty constrained. Um, we saw that on a lot of the president's major initiatives and even some of the key Senate initiatives. And so uh, looking at it from that sort of foundational standpoint, you've got a real challenge there. Uh, and uh, Leader Schumer earlier this week and then again yesterday was pretty clear that he's ideally seeking um, that uh, uh, complete, complete bill and not sort of incrementalism. I, I thought there was a really encouraging sign that he had earlier in the week where he did s float that concept. Um, that you could do banking with some of the elements of the social equity provisions. Um, and so you may have some sort of a compromise that gets uh, a partial step um, but moves that uh, social equity component along with it. Um, and uh, for folks that uh, that's their prime issue on the social equity front, uh, now is the time. Uh, if, if you wait and, and, and things get implemented uh, whole scale without that, it will be more difficult, um, if not impossible, to add that later. So you can, you can understand uh, why folks who are passionate are, are digging their heels in about it. But I do see that one sort of narrow shot, <laughs> narrow window in there um, where you might have uh, sort of a partial um, that brings banking uh, along with some of the basic social equity provisions. So that's, that's the avenue I see happening this year in an election year with a very close Senate, um, a House that's currently projected to flip. Um, every vote is going to be scrutinized intensely. Um, and so getting everything done in this short period of time would, would be great. Um, but I'm not sure that I see that making its way through with everything else that's out there. I mean, that's the way I feel. It's unfortunate, but... Um you know, it's just not politically palatable uh, for folks. 
um, you know, for unfortunately, the social equity piece doesn't take precedent. And I'm, I'm, I'm super upset about that. Obviously, I'm a black man. And, you know, I've gone through hardships of the war on drugs personally and people in my family and things like that. I would love to be able to own a cannabis business or open up a dispensary, so on and so forth. But, um, you know, if I can't have access to banking or if I can't get a loan or if I can't sustain the business, how, you know, how am I even going to try to uh, open up the door for the in the first place? You know, Alex, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, I know you uh, report on this, this type of stuff all the time. So from the Weed Week perspective, I'd like to hear, you know, your thoughts. Well, I mean, so... So it seems like the the controversy here is the the, the issue is about whether um, pat, sort of federally legalizing is one bill, sort of comprehensive le- uh, legislation, um, which would include social equity, which is what what Senator Schumer wants to do. I mean that's that's probably not feasible right now. So so what he's what he's trying to do is put some social equity provisions into a banking bill, or he's expressing openness to do it, to doing that. Um, and I don't think the, the equity, the banking bill that just passed the house contains any um, social equity provisions. Um, at the same time, many uh, social equity businesses say, Hey, we need banking. And the the bigger companies that, that aren't social equity businesses, they have the resources to essentially pay for workarounds to banking. So banking would have a certain social equity function. At the same time, it would free up the bigger companies to, to do a lot more, to, um, to expand their businesses. I don't believe it would allow them to go public on, on American stock exchanges, but I'm, but I'm not sure. So, so, so the question is, I mean, in the meantime, equity businesses are, are struggling to, to survive. Certainly here in California, they are. And um, it, it's going to be a tough road for them, which, whichever way you go. Uh, the, Equity hasn't um, delivered what what it what it promised to, and and so and it's not clear that when when Schumer says he wants to keep the the big guys out, it's it's not clear that he knows the big guys are already here and they're not they're not going anywhere. Um, so it it doesn't it doesn't quite add up, uh, but that's where we are. Yeah, totally agree. Go go ahead, Matt. Hey, Brian, I got, I got a question. Um, so in terms of the idea that the, the majors are already on scene and they're clearly focused on it, they've got resources um, uh, uh, addressed to it, they're developing plans and so forth. But um, it would, the question here is, it, it seems like there's, to me, it seems like there's a differentiation between the majors, the major majors. <laughs> you've got your MSO majors and then you've got your global new majors that are entering. There's a difference between Eltra and Constellation being involved in the way they are now and post-federal legalization where they're actually showing up in your city. They're opening shops. 
um, they're, they're engaged in a much more active way and can bring those multi-billion dollar global efficiencies to the system. Now, that's going to come with other things that people uh, may not necessarily like that's going to change the industry and take some of the, you know, the history out of it and the culture and so forth. But it's going to reduce prices and, and bring a uniform product. So that's sort of my question is, do you all see that differentiation there um, between them being there now and being there in the way I think Schum, what he I think what he's saying is he's going to sh- they're going to show up and they're going to first compete a lot of people out of business and then they're going to sort of gobble them up and bring a more sort of uniform um, sort of feel to the industry. So I just kind of throw that out there to see uh, where you guys um, you know think that impact is. You know, I mean, personally, I- I'll say this: th- this uh, approach or where the current operators or, or investors in cannabis are now, it could potentially evolve into something else, I think. But but nobody wants a pack of Marlboro weed smokes. I mean, I just don't see myself, you know, tapping it on my hand, waiting for a bus, popping out of the, you know, it's just that they're going to put like rat poisoning or something in it. I, I You know, the, the culture of marijuana, is the people who are involved in cannabis right now, they're way too savvy. They know what's what. They'll, they'd rather buy from their dealer than to go uh, to the Altria storefront <laughs> and buy the, 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 the cannabis cigarettes with the man with the cowboy hat on. Uh, but, but, but yeah, you know, the, it is a concern, right? Because the average person that hasn't used cannabis, they might feel like this is a, a safe way to go in or an entry point. But if they're smart enough about the history of tobacco in, in their industry itself, tobacco, they, they, they were allowed to advertise. They were allowed to – they're still allowed to, to, to just put whatever it seems like they want in these products. And I think that's where the cannabis industry will differentiate from that. But we don't know, right? We don't know. Um, Constellation Brands, uh, the, the makers of Corona Beer, right, they're, they're already invested in canopy growth. If the federal government legalizes, they have a switch, right, ready to flip. Um, so I just – I, I don't know to the extent of what what they're gonna do, but but um, it, it, it could be scary. It could be scary, but I don't I don't think I don't see us stopping them either, really. No, no, no. You won't be able to stop it for sure. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think, Alex? Do you think uh, they're gonna come in and uh, force us to blaze a Newport 100 uh, cannabis stick? <laughs> well, I'm, I I don't know their 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 plans exactly, but. They're probably my my instinct is to say they're they're probably aware of these things and and they will probably buy some some brands that have more credibility. So I mean, you can even see that with like the the MS the MSOs, the multi state operators, and some of the some of the sort of California brands that have um, street cred, like. True Eve, for example, which is, you know, the big MSO based in Florida, they've got a partnership with Connected, which is one of these hot brands right now that just goes, has a lot of support on social media and stuff like that. And I mean, I, I anticipate uh, probably alcohol and tobacco companies would want to take advantage of, of those kinds of uh, marketing tech as well and the quickest way to do it is just hide behind the cool brands indeed well said um and i and i totally agree good 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 um perspective and good point uh matt as well but um 
I want to move it to the next story here. And much like uh, Senator Schumer doubling down on, on not accepting these bills, next up is a story where we double down on Marijuana Moment. Kyle Yeager again with the story. Um, he had the first one as well. But uh, keep it in D.C. for a bit. The next article explains that the D.C. City Council recently voted to approve a proposal to allow older residents of the nations of our nation's capital to self-certify themselves as cannabis patients without a doctor's recommendation as early as October this year. So once that September 30 mark has hit, uh, you know they, you know, with this uh, piece of language, they won't, they will no longer need to go through doctors to certify themselves, and that's uh, the 65 and older crowd. Um, starting in, as early as October, if possible. This measure was named the Medical Marijuana Patient Access Extension Emergency Amendment Act of 2022. Now, we need an acronym for that, for sure. Um, but but <laughs> this will also, also apparently recognize uh, 420 in April, to some degree, with a holiday, quote, holiday tax break for that weekend. So that's an interesting um, play on on the culture here, uh, but but there have been several attempts to restructure the DC setup since 2014 when adult use became a thing, uh, without a single storefront to buy anything from. Might I add, um, you know, medical patients is a little bit different, but when we talk about adult users um, or adult use pay people, regular listeners of the show probably know that the Andy Harris writer uh, has more or less prevented the commerce part and force uh, folks to pull out the old sell you a $200 vase with a gift of weed inside trick. Um, so to be clear, the measure we're talking about, again, deals with senior citizen patients' access to medical cannabis in D.C., uh, which is under less scrutiny than adult use. Um, but Matt, you're based in D.C. or the DMV. Uh, is this an effective policy? Is it addressing what we need it to currently as far as urgency goes? And, and especially given the fact that senior citizens are an increasing demographic in the dispensary storefront nowadays. Yeah, it's uh, – uh, I don't know that it um, has a high probability of solving uh, all the problems that are out there. When you ask, is it what's needed um, uh, it, to me, this looks more uh, like an attempt to to find a good piece of policy that, that helps out some some people that are generally sympathetic in, in the public eye and continue to move the conversation towards one um, where you have better access. And starting with medical is just an easier um, uh, argument to make uh, for the general public and, and, and more persuasive on it. Um, it's a it's a fascinating um, sort of uh, statement on, on where DC is uh, as a municipality in this country that um, perhaps not in this case, but uh, certainly in the uh, implementation of the overall uh, regulations that they've got, they had to put those through Congress. And so to your point, yet another example of how this in-between space that we've got is possibly the most sort of dangerous setup that we've got where you can possess it and, and, and sell it and or I'm sorry, possess it and buy it, um, smoke it and so forth, but you can't sell it, right? So that's sort of the provision on it. So you've created this sort of through the looking glass set of regulations that don't make a lot of sense. And, you know, hopefully you can kind of incrementally, uh, in this particular case, demonstrate where the value is and particularly on the, the medical side. The tax holiday thing will be fascinating, right? Because that's such an issue within this industry. 
Certainly one as I, as I come to it from a, you know, a center right perspective, taxes are a big part of it. You got to help entrepreneurs be successful and the tax burden crushes many of them. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see how many people decide that that's the day to go and save some taxes and kind of load up on things. Um, and what does that mean? You know, just from a supply chain perspective, that could be a really interesting uh, uh, thing that develops there. But uh, so, you know, it's, it's a piece of legislation that'll keep the conversation out there and keep it going. But I don't think it is certainly solves, you know, all the, the myriad problems that D.C. has regulatory perspective. Absolutely. And I've visited D.C. on a number of occasions. I actually got a chance to do some lobby work uh, through Normal, uh, where I met Keith Strop, the founder of Normal, back in 2016. But, um, you know, listeners to the show probably know I was the executive director of the Cleveland Normal uh, chapter for a spell. And, uh, yeah, D.C. is an interesting place. It's like I can go lobby on Capitol Hill, I can go change laws, and then I can go home and grow like six plants if I want. Um, you know, it's like that. I mean, I honestly, I, I keep trying to tell my wife that's where I want to live. For that's where I want to go. I can make change and use cannabis without getting in trouble for the most part. But um, Alex, uh, have you experienced the, in, or have you witnessed the increase in, I'll say, senior citizen cannabis usage? Right. There's there's a lot of stats that come out and say senior citizens are are increasingly going to the dispensary and trying cannabis products. Uh, what's your take on this? Um, I, it's, it's very hard to, certainly the, the numbers suggest the, the latest numbers I've seen suggest that a lot of senior citizens like their cannabis. Um, and, and certainly with the, the st stigma eroding in, in at least some places. Yeah. Um, they're, they're using a lot more and I mean, and I believe there's also been some data that shows that, um, folks take um fewer um of the the less powerful opioids in in places where there's access to to cannabis so that that's pretty exciting um in terms of i mean in in terms of dc just getting access for folks there has just been a total nightmare for for decades because congress essentially has, has a great deal of control over over what what happens in in the city so i mean it'll, it'll be interesting to see to see what happens here if um if older folks get more interested if they don't have to go to a doctor if they don't have to um they might consider that a sort of embarrassing situation or a conversation they don't want to have so it, it it's sort of an, another chipping away at at the stigma but i i i don't and the and access and and stuff like this which is happening in all sorts of ways all around the country but i i don't think this is a, a major um barrier breaker mm -hmm. yeah i mean it will be nice to save uh what, what is it a six percent tax on medical cannabis uh to just have that zero percent for a weekend of 420 that's great but what about dab day <laughs> we got 710 out there too I mean, yeah. Also, I mean, the the question is a lot of folks um, <clears throat> taxes are taxes are an issue, but um, so so we'll see, right? And mm -hmm. right, are, is seven ten going to be acknowledged? Probably <laughs> not immediately by the DC City Council. 
Well, I don't know about you, but my granny likes to dab. I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I did have the pleasure of actually being in a, uh, invertedly in a session with my grandmother, a sesh, if you will, uh, on my dad's side. So I, I, I bucket list. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, this is a fascinating uh, topic, I think. But yeah, again, I agree with you both. It, it, it's not a large move, um, but it is nice to see our nation's capital acknowledging that without the culture for to, to a certain extent, you don't really win at this, you know, to kind of bring it back to our other story. You need to maintain the culture, right? You talked about certain MSOs with that quote unquote street cred. I mean, they need to have movers and shakers. You look at every MSO now uh, across the country, they have a diversity and equity inclusion committee all of a sudden, right? So now, we, you know, that's becoming popular. We know through just history that a more diverse group of people gives you a better outcome as far as statistics are going as far as who you're reaching who's coming in the store and, and how you can relate to different people but uh yeah that, that that's in life man you got to expand your horizons go 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 talk to some brown folks sometimes and uh you know talk to some uh you know light-skinned folks sometimes and we'll be all right hey, let's all talk to each other <laughs> ah that's the end of segment one i think that's a good place to stop things uh but when we come back we'll chop it up with the <laughs> we'll chop it up about the $1 million NFL CBD study and how California lawmaker, well, at least one California lawmaker, wants to bring cannabis back to the dark ages of prohibition. But first, here's my man Shay Gunther with a word from our sponsors. We're very thankful to have the support of our friends over at Hedgerow Analysis. If your legal marijuana company needs location-specific data-centered projections to help you plan and grow your business, look no further than Hedgerow Analysis. They have all kinds of fancy computer models backed up by smart blocks of relevant data to help you work out things like where the best place to build your dispensary would be. Or maybe you need help citing a distribution network to ensure maximum profitability for a delivery service. Whatever your location-based strategic problems are, it's likely that Hedgerow Analysis can help you solve them. Pop over to hedgerowanalysis.com to learn more about the company's capabilities and to get in touch. That's hedgerowanalysis.com. Nation, we're back. So, in a Cannabis Business Times report from Melissa Schiller, the National Football League has granted a cool million to two groups of medical researchers at the University of San Diego and the University of Regina. I believe that's out of Canada, if I'm not mistaken. I'll try to look that up. Yeah. But, um, okay, good. And basically, what they're going to do is study how cannabinoids can affect pain in contact sports. Fascinating stuff, um, long overdue. Though this is being called a real-time study, air quotes, with professional athletes, current players, do not actually have the ability to participate. 
Um, so it's pretty interesting because the current players are actually going through concussion protocol, which is something that they want to address uh, in this this study. So how do you how do you talk to someone who's you know already been through all that and and, and relate real time evidence? I don't I don't I don't see the real time connection here, but that's all right. We we talk to former folks, I guess, because everybody who retires they they now all of a sudden want to do something about something. Uh, that seems like it's across the board, uh, but. Um, it feels like we're living in an age of positive cannabis research, finally. Um, no thanks to NIDA. But all that has not been suppressed, obviously, by the federal government. Uh, you know, the government for a spell actually did a lot of good research about cannabis, helped us discover cannabinoid receptors, helped us discover, you know, different uh, parts of our endocannabinoid physiology. You know, and a lot of times they were like, wait a minute, we found out good stuff about cannabis? Stop those studies. No, no, no. We want to see how cannabis is abusive, right? The acronym NIDA is National Institute on Drug Abuse. So for the longest time, they've had the monopoly on research, and we've covered that on the show, how that's starting to, um, you know, sort of uh, be lifted here. Um, so the NFL study plans uh, on addressing whether cannabis can serve as a neural protectant, a concept that our nation's Health and Human Services Department could probably shed some light on, seeing as though they had a patent on it for quite a while. Um Alex, I want to start with you. Uh, isn't there enough research already on this particular application of cannabis when we talk about pain management and, and, and things like that? Um, in most medical cannabis states, pain is usually the number one qualifying condition on the list. I'm in Ohio. Number one qualifying condition is pain, right? And, and that, that's true for a lot of other places, but not to mention the, the, the government's patent on cannabis as a neuroprotectant and antioxidant. They already had these, this uh, uh, data that we could kind of th thumb through. Um, what do you, what do you, what do you think is going to come from from the NFL throwing their dollars at something like this? Well, first of all, I mean it's a high profile study just by the by the NFL being being involved, and th there is there is a lot of research out there, but the the research is sort of hard to pull together. Look, I, I'm not. I'm not a scientist. I, I don't want to get it, get over my skis here, but my understanding is, you know, people keep studying scientists, keep studying all sorts of things um, at all times. That's what, what science is about. So, and with, with cannabis there, there are a lot of studies out there, but a lot of them aren't, they've been done in sort of sideways ways or, um, through institutions that don't necessarily have the credibility. So a study like this, I think, I think it's very helpful to begin to get an idea of what, um, what cannabis does and doesn't do. It's, it's a process that needs to happen for all sorts of um, conditions and indications, but that with cannabis just isn't happening. So, any sort of, I, I think it's great. Um, no, no, no matter what the results, it will, it will help us learn more about what cannabis does and doesn't do, and and that is going to inform policymakers, lawmakers about what kind of access there there should be to them. So, if there's um, a result that shows that. If if cannabinoids, I guess it's CBD and THC in this case, can help NFL players with pain, then people are going to think, 
um, you, you know, even if that doesn't necessarily change the policy position, um, people are going to think, well, if it can help NFL players with their with their pain, it can probably help me with mine. Uh, so so I'm all for it. And and I, I just think we need more of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't disagree with the fact that there hasn't been legit, um, you know, large studies conducted. You know, there's been several independent studies and in other countries have have done things. But um, no, that, that that's a good point. Um I'll, I'll say this though that it, it, to me it's like okay we're gonna test this uh, on former NFL uh, players and that's that's kind of where my hang up is is like wouldn't it be better to allow them to use cannabis like just select a group of folks that are currently playing just to get that sample study of of how that relates versus you know someone who's already retired and, and you know sitting on the couch with a got the got the six pack but it ain't the one that he used to have you know what i'm saying it's like <laughs> i don't know it, 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 i just feel like it i just feel like it's a it's a decent amount of money it's a high profile study like let's let's look into something that that hasn't been pounded into the ground i mean i, I understand where where you're coming from though uh because I, I don't know i just feel like the the at the very least cannabis can be used for pain and stress it's like we we've all and and this study is is a culmination of anecdotal uh uh evidence of people coming out and saying cannabis help me i don't care what you say suspend me cannabis help me this is what you know there are several people in the nfl saying that so i it's good it's good i'm glad that they're doing it i just hope that they're not gonna stagnate it like much of the other uh big funded research you know um matt what do you think well i'll tell you i think it's pretty exciting um just starting from what you all said about the importance of research, right? Whenever you have an important decision in your life, you can you can delay the decision or you can add more information, right? And everybody has some important decisions in front of them about how they're going to want to move forward on the cannabis front. And so this is going to give you more information. So that's a plus. I think when you take the NFL in the run-up to the Super Bowl and they are going to be combining concussions and race and cannabis... I, I think that's going to be really interesting to see how that all moves forward. And Brian, from your perspective, it's super interesting. You know, the, the pain management component is one part, but the like neural protection um, against concussions, you know, protection seems like an ongoing or in advance of a concussion type of thing. So to your point, how you can take sort of retired players, what you're going to be able to glean from that uh, is going to be interesting. But, you know, everybody, science stands on the shoulders of giants. You take sort of little steps forward. Um, I, I think that's a fascinating one. If you can get into the idea of this substance in some way, and I'm making no medical claims about it, I have no idea they're going to find this out. And it can protect the, the neurological pathways of the brain from con- concussion, that's, that's something humans have been seeking for a long, long time. <laughs> that's a huge benefit to us. Here's the other part about this that really jumps out to me that, that, that I think will, will be interesting is I haven't yet seen a medical study or heard of a medical study which finds the silver bullet we're all looking for. They usually come with a set of options with trade-offs. <laughs> that's, what, that's how sort of health works. And so we're going to have a study that is going to have good information. It's going to have useful information. But not all of that information is going to be the silver bullet that people are looking for. And so that's going to be a real interesting push and pull as the research increases um, is dealing with 
an imperfect thing and the imperfection of life and sort of selecting um, where it can be beneficial to some people in a great way and how do you regulate sort of the negatives and, and risk mitigate out of it. Um, but I think it, it's going to be, I think it's going to be a fascinating study when it comes out. I think it's going to drive a lot of dialogue and it's going to propel other research and other, and other questions and other energy. Yeah, yeah, no, I can't disagree with that. And, um, you know, to, to Alex's credit, it is a, a high-profile uh, group doing the study, which uh, apparently makes all the, dif the difference. Um, we had just had a celebrity in the White House, so I guess that's what uh, America likes. They want people who, <laughs> people who know how to get on Twitter and, you know, and stuff like that. But anyway, uh, that that... The results from that remain to be seen, and, and um, I, I'm interested in seeing what comes out as well. So we'll, we'll actually probably touch back on that story again at some point with other guests on the show. Uh, it's just some pretty good, some pretty good um, moving on the research front uh, as far as 2022 is concerned. We, it seemed like we started off literally trying to research cannabis a lot better than we've done before. And to, and to my point on the, the government patent, it's like that, that to me— the government needs to come up off that research. All that research that they've done for a long time, they need to just go ahead and throw it out there and let us have something to compare uh, or a point of, to, to, of contrast. Because if they have a patent, or they had, I don't know if it expired yet, uh, a patent on cannabis as neuroprotectants and antioxidants, that tells you that it's good for neuroprotectants and antioxidants. You don't go out and get a patent on something and, and, and you don't think it works. Right. For something. You know, who does that? They, they want to have their cake and eat it, too, which is why I have a little bit of cynicism about this. Uh, but I do agree that the, the profile and the stature of the folks doing the study will make all the difference to the public. Uh, all right. Well, next is uh, an MJ Biz Daily story uh, covered in California. Let's stay in California real quick. West Coast, best coast. Uh, where a potential bill could enforce harsher penalties for an act that is a staple to most activists' form of cannabis legalization. I'm talking about home grow, y'all. San Bernardino Republican Assembly member Thurston Smith is living up to his name by Thurston for the recriminalization of homegrown cannabis. Thurston. Stop being thirsty, man. Especially since you represent a state that already allows home cultivation of six plants. Under this proposed Assembly Bill 1725, which I don't think is too popular, unlicensed home grow cannabis would go from being a misdemeanor to a felony. This would increase the maximum penalty, which is currently one year in jail to three years in jail. And I'm sure I don't need to explain how this is disastrous to the very hemp fiber of our being. Alex, this is your neck of the woods, and your state is known for its robust cannabis culture. So why would someone want to do this? So, um, so this bill is unlikely to to pass, Thank but um, and it. You know, it really lit up social media and stuff like that with, you know, why are they trying to to recriminalize plant and recriminalize re growing? And and that and it seems like um, this is I, I'm not sure that uh, look that in California, the illegal market is still 
said to be at least twice as big as the legal market. And the people in the, the legal market, especially small businesses, they say their toughest competitors are the illegal market. The illegal market doesn't tax them. The illegal market can operate in places where the legal market can't. So, so, that, so this bill seems to be um, a rather clumsy attempt to, to address that. And I, I think it's worth saying that this guy, the, the uh, lawmaker in question, is from San Bernardino County, which is the, the Inland Empire, which is sort of the desert suburbs east of L.A. And it is an area that is just rife with these massive um, illegal grows. And those are making making it very difficult for, for licensed businesses to function. So, you, you know, you could give this guy the benefit of the doubt and say he is trying to protect the legal market. Um, at the same time, he's doing it in sort of a, a very tone deaf way to the to the cannabis activist community and in, in a sort of ineffective way, because this bill isn't going to pass. I think there are probably ways where you can you could create a law to target uh, massive illegal grows that that doesn't penalize somebody growing 10 plants in their in their backyard. Yeah, it feels like the the Gonzalez versus Reich, you know, kind of deal where they 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 allow this to happen to state law but they're still having federal presidents for interference and I don't know, it's the, the lady's growing under her own guidelines for her state, but now it seems like lawmakers want to interfere once again. And, you know, California took the long way around. They were the first state in 96, as listeners know, to legalize medical cannabis, but it took them 20 more years to to finally do adult use. So, yeah, this, I agree. This is a clumsy attempt to try to address something. And also, how about the government just stop taxing cannabis so hard? That's one of the keys to, to keep the black market from thriving. You don't want to tax it to hell. Uh, you know, if, if you want to survive. And you also don't want to sell it too low because you don't want your business to, to, to go under. There's a, there's, there has to be a, a comfortable middle ground. Uh, what do you think, Matt? Where is that middle ground? Well, we're trying to figure that out right now uh, with uh, this industry and, you know, frankly, everything else in life. <laughs> the world's changing so rapidly. And so, you know, b b balance is the key to everything, right? So uh, without knowing the specific intent behind this legislator and, and what they were thinking about, the, the part that stands out to me is I suspect that this is a conversation that will continue and will grow is how do you treat um, the illegal market. We're, we're still not in that state of balance. We haven't worked through this. We haven't um, looked back uh, at, at uh, what you want to do from a standpoint of restorative justice. And those types of things are getting worked out, right? We talked about that sort of at the, the beginning of the process, and it's going to sort of play its way through. But I think the, the termination point of this type of conversation happens after full legality when the industry says what um, a, a grower in California said towards the end of last year, I feel safer on this when I was dealing on the street illegally. My store has been robbed multiple times. Tucky and, and, Blunt. And, You're talking about Tucky Blunt out of Oakland. 
How? Yes, exactly. Out of Oakland, I felt safer on the streets of Oakland, right? And so, and the RNC tweeted about that. The Republican National Committee tweeted about that because crime is sort of it, such an issue in in the country. But when I when I look at I look at what is the what is the terminus point of this and think back to the end of prohibition, right? Why aren't we all making bathtub gin right now? Number one, because it's super dangerous, <laughs> and it's not a, it's a process that can make poison just as easily as a refreshing beverage, right? So that was one part of it, and you have a little bit less of that certainly in the home grow and, and the leaf standpoint, concentrates can, can, can get dangerous. And we saw that with Vapegate. But, but the other part comes is the, the enforcement entities crack down on illegal operators. They, they stop them. And so once this moves to full legality, I anticipate that the sort of, again, through the looking glass sort of nature of this industry, it's going to be the companies and, and that are selling it that say, look, we can't run our business anymore. Part of it is taxation. You talked about that, Brian. They're getting, I mean, they're just getting crushed. You can't compete that way. And we can talk all day long about letting the free market have a little bit better footage. This is not a free market <laughs> type of product, but having a little bit better footage. So those entrepreneurs that are trying to do it the right way can ultimately compete. But once you move to full legality and you've gotten to some sense that the, 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 the restorative justice and the social justice components of it have been taken taken into full consideration and taken care of, then you're going to have a, a, a call from the industry um, to crack down on the illegal operators because it's going to constrain their ability to be successful. So that's not a today thing, although you will start to see some of those conversations happen in Virginia. And as you continue to move to legislative conversations in more purple and red states, that's going to be a conversation of sort of how do you manage the criminal justice um, components of this uh, and safety surrounding it. So uh, I, I think it's a it's an interesting moment um, that will have some even more interesting <laughs> sort of moments to follow as the industry continues to mature. Absolutely, yeah. You you said a, a mouthful of meaningful stuff, and I and I definitely uh, agree with both of you here. Uh, you know, e even even trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, which you know, I wouldn't have done that if it went for Alex here. <laughs> but but that that just it's like, dude, come on, how. Like you said, how tone deaf can you be, man? It, it, this is someone clearly that, you know, really doesn't have too much of a stake in this, but kind of sees from his perspective, right? From what's going on in his backyard, and he kind of wants to implement that. And, and don't get me wrong, I, we talked about this on the show before. California and Oregon have enough weed for the entire country. Let's be real. Like those two states can supply the entire country for the rest of time. Um, you know, that, that's just how much cannabis is being moved through there. But at the same time, let's not let's not turn our backs on the legacy market and act like the seed fairy came and, and, and um, legalization just popped up because we put our tooth under the, the, the pillow. Right. We, we turned a blind eye to the legacy market and let them bring seeds and stuff in and let them grow and set up all of our programs. So 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 at the very least, we should try to bring some of these former felons that are only in jail or in, got in trouble for cannabis at the forefront, at the table. This is this is how you alleviate that. You get some of the people that don't want to live like that anymore, which I'll tell you, for one, there's a lot of people that are in the drug game that don't want to do it, but they don't see any other men, uh, means to an end. And also, everybody who's growing at home is not selling it, all right? Everybody who's growing at home is not good at it either, for that matter. Good stuff, y'all. Wow. Um, I think we can end segment two on that note that, you know, but, but, but when we come back, we're going to use segment three to discuss two more states making marijuana moves. But for now, 
let's check in with Shay. And that way we can hear a word from our sponsors. This week, we're glad to have the support of our friends over at The Atlantic Farms of Portland, Maine, which is known around town for their unique medical marijuana dispensary slash gas station, where you can fuel up on all the things you need to get down life's road. Pop over to theatlanticfarms.com today to browse their extensive menu of top-notch Maine marijuana products, all available at hugely affordable prices. That's theatlanticfarms.com. If you do stop in, tell them I said hello. In a News 5 Cleveland piece from Kevin Barry, the expansion of Ohio's medical cannabis dispensary market just got closer to reality. So we're going to go from the West Coast to the Midwest, where I'm at, and just talk about what's going on with that whole dispensary lottery crap. All right. So the Ohio Medical Marijuana Control Program recently released a list of nearly 1,500 applicants vying for a chance to uh, own one or more of the 73 provisional licenses up for grabs. Now, local companies and multi-state operators alike have entered the second round of dispensary license distribution as the state prepares to increase their dispensary count to 130. Currently, we have 57 in the state. And full disclosure, I am a medical cannabis patient. Uh, and there are various uh, real estate options, uh, like what we talked about last week, uh, such as the former family video storefronts, uh, the the uh, Burger King to Blockbuster, if you will. Uh, as mentioned during last week's show, the, that was our funny article of the week. <laughs> um, but, I, but I noticed when I read this article that there was an image that stood out to me. It was an image of a potential dispensary location that was super familiar to me. It, it actually had been a bar called Sidetrack Cafe. Shout out to everybody in, in the Cleveland Lakewood area to know about Sidetrack Cafe. But that, that's a place where I used to host Cleveland Normal Monthly Meetings, y'all. So that's an actual bar where we met once a month sometimes and, and talked about how to implement cannabis policy. We talked about how to make medical cannabis a thing in Ohio, and our activist efforts kind of culminated into what we see now uh, uh, in the state. But, but the, it's such a poetic justice situation for me, uh, word to Janet and Tupac. But Barry's article also pointed out three separate pieces of cannabis law reform that have potential to pass. Now, they didn't go into details on what they were, but right now Ohio has, you know, the state legislature uh, involved. They have, we have a potential petition uh, that's going to go to the ballot. And um, one of those efforts, the one I mentioned, the petition, uh, the signature gathering effort, uh, is from a group called the Coalition to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol. And that's, uh, 
you know, more or less the spokesperson for that group is my my, my good buddy uh, Tom Heron, who you probably will hear on the show uh, soon. And this basically this signature gathering process has cleared another hurdle putting pressure on lawmakers to act. So not only do we have medical marijuana expansion here uh, and, and bills in the legislative uh, side of things potentially going forward, we also have a, a, a ballot initiative that could appear before voters this November that we talked about on the show before. Now, Alex, given your exposure to a mature medical cannabis market like in Cali, what can Ohio learn from other states when it comes to dispensary expansion? Uh, I want to say I always when I used to work for the dispensaries um, and I used to be a bud tender, I used to tell people when they came in, hey, welcome to California in 96, because that's what I feel like Ohio is. <laughs> We're trying to be California back in the 90s. Uh, we haven't even gotten close to what you all are doing now. But um, how do we do this? What, what's the best way to do to, to, to add more dispensaries to the market? I mean, I, I think the the most important thing is is to understand that the dispensaries are competing are competing against the illegal market and create a uh, an economic climate which enables them to to thrive to, despite that. So, I mean, and bringing it back to to home grow again, you, you know, some companies are opposed some of the bigger companies oppose home grow because well basically it cuts into their market share and and they say it's it's about safety and stuff like that that's sort of an ongoing issue in in michigan so i think they need to acknowledge both on one side there are there's the illegal market which is out to undersell them and and can reach places the legal market can't. And on the other side, there are people who, who just want to grow their own. And it, I think it's, it's about trying to identify conditions. It's a very hard thing to do, but it may be easier to some respects in, in, in a place like Ohio, where the cannabis culture, if you'll forgive me saying so, doesn't go quite as deep. And, and there, there's not such a, uh, a culture of, of growing your own and, and, and appreciation so that um, folks are are happy to get cannabis and they're not as comfortable with with their dealers and they, they just want to um, want a normal market as, as soon as possible. I will say there is a demographic of people who simply I'm only going to the dispensary. I want to know what's in my stuff. I want to, you know, I want it to be tested. So there is something to be said about that in a, in a semi-conservative state like Ohio. I think we're more purple than anything. But uh, yeah, no, no, no. I I don't disagree um, with that take, uh, Matt. If you were opening up, uh, you know, several dispensaries, or if you had your finger on the pulse of that, what would you do? Would you do a lottery drawing like Ohio's doing? Well, I think that's a, what you've done is put your fingers on a question that I don't know that the industry has an answer for yet, and government certainly doesn't doesn't either, right? Uh, so I, I, 
I, I'm going to dodge. Let me give you the dodge right now because I don't think we have enough information to make that decision. Um, whether it's on the license system or, or whether you're going to have social equity provisions and if so, what they're going to be, um, I think that's a phase we're going to see more of. And, and we're doing some of that that work candidly right now on the, on, on the hedgerow analysis side is to begin to sort of look at like, okay, what system is optimal? What are you trying to achieve and, and does it result in it? The, the interesting thing is you look at the lottery system in Ohio here, one of the key um, uh, motivations for it was this is medical. It's to have the access for people that are patients to have access to the medicine that they need that has been prescribed by their doctors and they shouldn't have to drive hours to get it. Um, and you know what? Uh, the industry uh, looks like the bulk of the uh, applications were in the heavy population areas, right? So the strategy from the industry of being near population centers as it moves to recreational legality maybe didn't necessarily uh, give them the kind of geographic um, uh, dispersion that, that they were necessarily looking for on it. Uh, th the other thing with this type of lottery system that's getting you know really interesting, um, and everybody Everybody knows about the family, famous family video locations. I think we, like everybody else, sort of analyze that. And what you're seeing is a lot more family videos out there, right, that see a real estate market in cities that maybe is contracting a little bit, and now they think they're sitting on a pot of gold. So you're, you're actually getting investment companies that are trying to get ahead of the curve and, and, and buy these real estate in these key areas. And so, again, that's sort of you know an area that we do a good amount of work on the siding side, and it is turning into an absolute land rush. And so Ohio, again, uh, very much a state that um, has a, a, you know, a lot of um, uh, trends and, and, and momentum historically. Um, the ballot initiative is fascinating. In a state like Ohio, they have the ability to pass their own legislation, at, which keeps legislation off the ballot. They've done that several times did it on uh, redistricting reform a few years ago, right? And so they this is going to go to them. And Ohio is Absolutely a purple state. It's a great referendum for where the country is going. But if you look at how it's voted in recent years, it's a red state. And so I think that's another super exciting example of like this is a red state doing this. Okay, this is <laughs> and so what is that gonna look like compared to some of the policies that have been put in place in, in the blue states or in purple states or or in, in red states like Mississippi that it goes like ballot initiative. So just that that whole sort of you know great American mix of different perspectives um, and views on things is hopefully going to you know lead to what you indicated, diversity of thought, diversity diversity of background lead to a better outcome and hopefully this leads to you know overall better laws but we're we're in the we're in the middle or we're the end of the beginning as Churchill said maybe in this whole process there's a lot to, to met out but Ohio will be a super fascinating one to follow there'll be a lot of lessons there yeah I mean they call us a swing state for a reason you know we can we swing voters one way or another it's like um, one, I always say once you get past Columbus you might as well be in Kentucky um, so I'm standing my butt right up here in Cleveland uh, <laughs> but um, no, there there are there are bright spots to this, right? I'd see a light at the end of the tunnel finally, and with a robust uh, dispensary market, we'll have easy access to implementing an adult use market, right? To your point, we'll and it seems like based on that law that that you know may appear potential law that may appear before voters uh, this November, they're going to do just that. They're going to allow the medical program to continue to operate. Um, and then also want to correct myself because I read uh, a Cannabis Business Times uh, article a few shows ago 
that said that uh, Ohio is only allowing two plants home grow under the new uh, proposed initiative, but um, it's actually six plants. So I wanted to say it's actually six plants. We're going to let folks grow six plants um, uh, if the law passes, uh, and that's going to the lawmakers right now. Now they can either act on it or um, they could let it be, and then we can gather more signatures to go directly to the ballot. Now if they amend it, uh, and, and put the proposal out, it, we can kind of go back and forth there. So this is an interesting initiative slash referendum, you know, the IR process. There's two different ways to do it. Some states don't even let you do one, let alone, or, you know, or, or at least one other than two, you know, options of, of ballot entry. Some states you have to go directly to your lawmakers. So I do like the fact that we're, we're still allowing that. So many signatures are needed for it, but... Uh, I think this will be great, and um, I, there's a lot of family videos uh, everywhere. I mean, they're everywhere. Uh, it'll be great to see those be converted, um, especially the one. I, I, I really like the fact that Sidetrack Cafe is going to be converted. That because like we, we literally, we literally had meetings there and smoked weed illegally <laughs> during and after those meetings. Now we can literally go there and buy it <laughs> once it if it becomes a dispensary. That is, um, but yeah, it's just so many people trying to get it. That's the troubling part to me, I guess. 1,500 separate applicants. It's like, wow, for 73 licenses. And that's $5,000 a pop for that application fee. Ooh. That's a, then nobody's getting that money back. So uh, kudos to all of you who were able to look through your couch cushion and scrape together two nickels to, to make that happen because I, not me. Um, but, any, but with that being said, anybody who needs to be on the board of directors, holler at me. Um, <laughs> Uh, you, uh, Matt, you alluded to Mississippi, so I want to jump in the old plane powered by hemp fuel and fly us on down to M.I. Cricket letter, cricket letter, I. I'm not going to do the whole thing. So our final news story of the show uh, brings us to Mississippi for the latest in the Bible Belt's slow trudge to medical cannabis legalization. It's been a two-year effort obviously it's been longer than that because when you get a ballot going it takes several years and failures you know trust me i know um so voters in 2020 already decided that they were going to allow medical marijuana in their state but the mississippi supreme court gutted the effort we talked about that on the show state lawmakers have been working since to craft legisla uh, legislation palatable enough for your uncle governor tate reeves not to veto it, right? Don't veto it, please, uh, as he originally threatened to do, right? So he, he's definitely not down with this, but he doesn't want to circumvent the, the, the will of the voters any further because he knows it's politically unpopular, even in a state like Mississippi. Uh, after going from five ounces to four to three and a half to finally settling on three ounces uh, that a medical patient can possess, uh, just a frame of reference, your possession limit in Ohio is nine ounces. So just a little FYI there. They finally settled on three <laughs> after a series of drafts, and the program is finally signed into law, begrudgingly as it may be. Matt, with the exception of Oklahoma, <laughs> why is it so difficult for southern states to implement a basic medical marijuana law effort? Well, you're talking about um, an area of the country that's that's pretty conservative. They're pretty conservative socially. 
Um, they're, they're pretty far right of um, center on a number of criminal justice issues. Um, and this uh, is still viewed uh, in the, the political um, environment right now. The issue of crime as it relates to the cannabis industry is one that's very clear, uh, clearly associated with higher rates of crime when you have um, illegal markets. Uh, and so that, that's going to be sort of a, uh, an immediate like political reaction that's going to continue to happen um, across the country. Um, I, I think it's fascinating to see how Mississippi is going to handle this because I think that's going to sort of pave the way for other um, areas across the across the southeast. Um, I do think that um, uh, Governor Reeves very much made the decision based on um, the um, the legal realities of it. I, I suspect he probably doesn't like it, and whether the popularity of it passing or not, notwithstanding, it's not going to hurt Tate Reeves' ability to run for re-election and get re-elected. He runs as somebody who um, wants to have less government in people's lives, less less taxes taken out of their their checkbook, and the, you know better education and and, and moving um, Mississippi forward, just sort of sort of broadly economically. Those are the priorities, and and those are what the majority of his voters, and it'll be a majority in the state, will sort of respond to. So this really isn't sort of his issue, and I think he's probably doing it. Because that's what the you know sort of the law requires. Um, I think it will be a slower process. There are counties in Tennessee that are still dry; they don't sell alcohol in Tennessee. Um, you just have some areas where this isn't for them, and for a product that maybe fifty percent of the American public has tried recently, and probably ten to fifteen percent of it uses on a regular basis, it's not going to be for any for everybody. And the, and there's going that amount is going to grow. That percentage is going to grow, but it's still going to have significant pockets, and those pockets are going to be dense in some of those states where um, they're, they're not going to be interested in it. And so uh, you may go into federal legalization with several states who don't have recreational legality and don't move on it very rapidly thereafter. So I, I just think this is kind of part of sort of who we are and uh, as a country. There's, there's different perspectives on it, and it's going to take a while um, for all of that to work out. But I do think it brings, it brings a different perspective. It brings different priorities. And it brings some conversations that can develop um, that will help mature the entire industry. Ultimately, will be beneficial. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And to your point about we may go into federal legalization without states that even have adult use. We may even go in without states that have a no law on the books for cannabis. Idaho, I'm looking at you and your potatoes. All right, I'm going to make a potato bowl, a bong, and come over there, and, and I'm going to show you how to smoke out of a potato. And then maybe that'll convince folks. Uh, Alex, uh, so that was some good stuff, Matt. But but Alex, I want to ask you, because Governor Reeves of Mississippi pointed out that he was concerned, um, and this is everybody's uh, 1985 version of their concern for, for, for cannabis, uh, DARE and Partnership for Drug-Free America-Fueled uh, Perspective, um, there are going to be more children using cannabis. There are going to be uh, more people using adult use. This is going to open it up for adult use. Well, you think that's the next step, but that, that usually that's usually what happens. We go from medical, we go from decrim to medical to adult use. That's usually the, the the sequence of events if you skip decrim altogether. But 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 yeah, I I, I just don't his fear mongering. How is that necessary in this in this uh, especially when when Matt's point is Republicans are about limited government. Right. This is the this is the issue that addresses many forms of that uh, um, 
perspective. So I just want to hear what you think uh, about Mississippi. And um, when are we going to Mississippi to go get because because sickle cell anemia is a qualifying condition. I that's the reason why I have my medical ca- cannabis card. So now I have a reason to visit um, the Confederate South. Um, but <laughs> but <laughs> I just love to hear you uh, shed a few uh, thoughts on this. <laughs> Look, I mean, he's a he's a Republican governor, and and he's seems like he's basically being forced to sign this thing. He doesn't have any affinity for cannabis, and and that's sort of what he he feels he has to say. But I I, I think it's sort of interesting that you know not that far away you've got Oklahoma, another very conservative state. But with a with a different spin on the conservatism, where you have um, an incredibly vibrant legal medical market, I think it has more dispensaries per capita than than any other state, and th- you've got people from Humboldt moving to moving to Oklahoma because they can make a living growing growing weed in Oklahoma, which is just amazing, and it's said to be like as easy to open. A, a dispensary there as to open a taco stand and nice that's not you know that comes from a specific s- tradition of conservatism in in oklahoma and and mississippi has a a different strain and yeah i mean i i think states are gonna they can't stop it and and tate reeves is right i mean it, it's going more people are going to use recreational marijuana and the state may benefit there. There may be less, less traffic accidents, um, stuff like stuff like that, but they're going to continue to share sort of the, these hoary stereotypes. And maybe people will, if the market conditions are such that there there's money to be made, attitudes will probably change there, there as well. Take a page out of Mitch McConnell's book, huh? Yeah, <laughs> we can make a make a little dollar. Uh, then we can do that. You know, for for a spell in the government, you used to be able to pay your taxes with hemp. I wish we could go back to that. Uh, it looks like you have something, Matt. No, I just think that's that is hilarious. Say <laughs> you could you could pay in hemp in Kentucky. I mean, there that's not a new hemp is not a new thing for Kentucky, right? I mean, that, that there's there was a reason that that all moved forward. I mean, that was a very important industry going way back, and and now is again. Hmm. Here, here, and uh, there were many st- uh, you know southern states involved in the production of hemp. You know, and, and then we look at those super hyper. Uh, prohibitive states like Nebraska, for instance, they were a, a, a big homestead for hemp, or should I say, hempstead? Anywho, oh, hempstead, Long Island. The reason why it's called hempstead, right? Think about it, y'all. There are certain cities in the country that have the name hemp because they were known historically for growing it. Um, so we need to take it all the way back to day one when old George Washington couldn't tell a lie. Um, except for, you know, he may have lied about his teeth not being hemp. Anywho, that is it for segment three, which I found that out recently. Uh, his teeth were made of hemp. That's pretty cool. And he had journals, too, that said how he grew it and whatnot. But um, that's it for segment three. Fantastic stuff. I'm having so much fun. Uh, I, I don't, I cannot believe we've already passed the hour mark. And um, I want to take one final break. 
Then after that, you know what we're gonna do. We're gonna hit you with finishing moves. folks it's time for finishing moves finishing moves finishing moves is the part of marijuana today where we talk about anything we want cannabis related or otherwise alex you're the newbie here you got first what is your finishing move i'm gonna talk about uh my my friend Janelle Alexander's story in um, Capital in Maine, which is a epic four part series on on cannabis equity, he looks at what's not working and how you can make it work, and it it's going to be hard. And he focuses a lot on Florida, where the state is hyper expensive to enter and you need a huge amount of money and political correct uh, connections as well. And at the same time, he, he looks at um, they're, they're looking to give out one license to a, to a black farmer. And that has not yet happened, but it, it's been a, a, a multi, multi-year ordeal to make that happen. And he sort of pulls back from there and sort of shows how the, the same thing is happening nationwide. And the, the solutions he proposes um, to, to make it work are going to be pretty hard, pretty hard to, uh, to make happen. And uh, so I, I think it's, and, and he shows that equity remains sort of an opt-in provision for, for major companies. And I, I think to really make, make equity happen in a meaningful way, companies really need to, to want to participate, not just post things on, on their Instagram. And we'll see if that, if that happens, but un, un, until they see it as a money-making proposition, I, I don't think they, they will to, to any real degree. Wow. Fire. Fatality on that one. Appreciate it. Matt, you got next. What's your finishing move? Well, I think that on the uh, social equity front, uh, 
folks, uh, uh, critically important now to be thinking about what exactly does that mean in practice from concept to, to how does that actually work? And we're super excited about that. We're doing a lot of um, uh, analysis in that space of, you know, what did you intend? Did it, did it achieve it? That type of thing. So you can put the right program in for, for your state and locality. But my finishing move is about the Brownies in Cleveland. Hey! Ohio. We did a lot of talking about Ohio, and we got to connect on that one because I'm from Syracuse originally. And so when I go to the dome, I'd see these pictures of Jim Brown running over people. I asked my dad, who's that guy? And he'd tell me about Jim Brown. So I grew up in the mid to late 80s when they were in the playoffs. And, you know, John Elway is still kind of a, a little bit of that's a tough one to swallow. He, you know, he got he nipped him a, a couple key times. But Jim Brown is a fascinating figure um, and his outspoken activism uh, once he became, um, you know, a, 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 a football star um, was fascinating. His ability to become a movie star. Um, so he's a really fascinating individual. I'll give you one fun fact about him that you may or may, may or may not know. Hopefully, this gives you a little something in Cleveland to work with. He was a four-star. Um, athlete um, at Syracuse, but football was not his best sport. There are people who say he was the best football player who ever played the game. Lacrosse was his best sport. And they actually had to change the rules of college lacrosse because he was so dominant. It's called the Jim Brown rule, that they had to change the rules of lacrosse uh, in order to, you know, to slow him down and stop him. Um, and he was still dominant thereafter. So, uh, you know, a fascinating guy, fascinating uh, place in American history and from a, from a fascinating state that's, you know, all these conversations kind of intertwine and, and that's what makes it fun. Man, shout out to you, man, for, for putting us on the map like that. Yes, I had no clue that there was a Jim Brown uh, rule in that sport so wow but yeah dude is a beast and wasn't he in mars attacks <laughs> <laughs> well i was i was i was i was thinking of some of the other ones i don't know was he oh man that was a good one too a little yeah. bit a little of a cult classic but uh, <laughs> uh <laughs> fantastic oh man so well keeping it with the science fiction theme because that's that's where my head is usually um my finishing move this time around uh, is a reminder that Star Trek Discovery returns this Thursday. That's February 10th, 2022. Captain Michael Burnham is back, and she's trying to build a better 32nd century for all man, woman, and non-binary kind, and other species as well. So shout out to Captain Michael Burnham, the first black female captain lead in a Star Trek series, Sonequa Martin-Green, the queen, and uh, Grudge the Cat is also a queen as well. But we're talking about Sonequa right now. So live long and prosper. And um, listen to this show again next week, and maybe you'll have other uh, nerd fans of these types of shows. <laughs> All right, folks. That is it for this edition of Marijuana Today. Huge props to our guests, Alex Halperin and Matt Walter. Thanks to Shay Gunther for producing the show. And special thanks to our sponsors for their support. Big Up Overclock Remix for the music that we use in the show. And I want to remind all of our listeners, Marijuana Nation, please subscribe, share, rate, review. And, you know, wherever you listen to your podcast, show a little love to us. Right? Peace and long life. Live long and prosper. Marijuana Nation. Um, have a good marijuana today and an even better marijuana tomorrow.
One take, Shay. One take. <laughs>